A uh, big announcement. We have some official Heritage Grace swag nice. uh, <laughs> that you guys can get now. And uh, <laughs> swag. Not swag. It's swag. This is stuff you pick up. So if you want to pass it around and show it in a little show and tell right there, that's good it's for sermons or Sunday school or, you know, your own personal devotions and, you know. What's that? Yeah, we'll have to talk about that Zechariah series. Uh, let's see. I think, yeah, that's that's it. That's about as as as, as thick as we're going to get that. Okay, you guys. Well, let's pray. And um, was this thing? Oh, okay, good. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. You're on thin ice there, sister. Wow. No more of that. We're... This Sunday school class is not like, you know, yeah, man, it's like a youth group in here now, throwing stuff at each other, you know, pull out the paintball guns next. Sheesh. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll get started, okay? Father, thank you so much for this glorious day, Lord. Thank you. It's uh, it's bright and sunny and warm. Um and we're just reminded of your of your grace and your creation, and so help us today, Lord, just to be reminded of um, just your your the the power of your grace for this world, Lord, even the common grace of God, and uh, remind us that even in your common grace, Lord, we experience so many of your blessings, and so remind us of how blessed we are even in those things, Father, today, and uh, help us to understand what your Word teaches regarding this important covenant. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are on uh, the covenant with Noah, or the covenant of Noah, or the Noahic covenant, however you want to say it. Um, I even got a footnote here because I'm, I'm using the phrase uh, covenant of Noah. And of course, what I mean by that is the covenant. So that would be grammatically an objective genitive, which means it's the covenant concerning Noah, right? Not like the covenant that Noah made. Right or something like that, but it's the covenant that concerns Noah and his family and his world and his time and all of those uh, really important things. Um, let's see, maybe I can, maybe I can pull up our trusty little chart one more time. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, this thing. Remember this thing. So just remember kind of where we're at. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, if you can kind of see that a little bit, but when you get to when you get to the covenant of Noah, see what happens here on the chart is that it follows the grace principle uh, that's operating in these covenants. But notice the line that's connecting to uh, the covenant of Noah that the line is sort of you know uh, broken up because. It's a different kind of grace, right? What kind of grace is it? It is a non-redemptive grace uh, that is that we are concerned with with the covenant of Noah, a non-redemptive grace. And so that is why uh, the Noahic covenant is called common, right? Because common grace is another way of, of talking about, I guess, what we could call universal grace. Um, let's see here. Yeah, get this guy out of the way. So that's kind of where we're at. Back to, yeah, pages. There we go. Okay, so the Noahic Covenant is often described by theologians as the neglected covenant 
since the majority of our attention is given to other covenants that have more of an immediate impact on the new covenant, for example, the covenant with Abraham. So, yeah, that's, that's true. You know, we, we typically tend to ne- skip over the Noahic covenant pretty quickly. Uh, and in that sense, it is kind of neglected. But it's a very important covenant and, I, and one that I've been impressed by um, more and more. I just found myself, I think Trisha can attest to this, but I just find myself referring to um, common grace quite a bit because I think common grace is a doctrine that has been sort of neglected, just kind of like the Noahic Covenant, um, that we don't really see the far-reaching implications, the profound effects of common grace, just like I put down here, and what I call the force of common grace. Because if you think about it, what are some aspects of common grace that we see in our lives? I mean, what, what, what are some things that are evidence of common grace that you guys can think of that you know about right now? Oxygen? Yeah, we can breathe. That's right. That's that's absolutely true. Yeah. Oxygen for the wicked. That's right. So. Correct. Yeah. Anything more specific? Yeah. Enjoyment. Just the the ability to enjoy life. Of course, everyone has that. Yes, ma'am. Hmm. Very good. So now. Now we're kind of seeing more specifics of common grace, right? That the common grace of God affects even things like our our governmental system and things like that. You know, like that's that's huge, right? I mean, what would our what would our lives be like without government? I mean, you may not like the government you're in, but you know, you know, go travel around the third world for a while. You know, you'll come back, you know, kissing the ground that you walk on here in America. You know, I mean, some countries are just complete disarray, anarchy everywhere. You know, lawlessness just abounds in the streets. You know, I mean, think about what's going on in Venezuela right now. You know, the government's completely failed the people. You know, so yeah, absolutely, uh, society being governed uh, by secular government is a grace of God. You know, it is it is a grace of God. What what else? What else? Any other evidence of that? Absolutely, just the ability, and and the government actually contributes to that, yeah. right? It curbs evil in our world. Mm-hmm. You know, it keeps the society again from spiraling out of control. You know, I mean, lawlessness. I mean, think about, like, the L.A. riots, you know, when that was happening. I mean, when society divulges into anarchy, just how bad can it get? You know what I mean? Well, really bad, you know what I mean? So, uh, yes, sir? I think there's one aspect he allows them. The common grip, he allows them to flourish, right, which provides for their daily needs, mm-hmm. as far as even, like, the material needs. Um, mm-hmm. Correct. So obviously, common grace has its limits, right? But I think it is significant. I mean, listen, I mean, doctors, you know, teachers, police officers, you know, ambulance, you know, first responders, you know, I mean, just it goes on and on, you know, uh, good neighbors. You guys allow me some, you know, expression with the word good, but you know what I mean, like responsible neighbors, Law-abiding citizens, you know, I praise God I live on the street that I live on that by and large my neighbors are really nice people, you know what I mean, and they mow their lawn and, 
you know, and, and they're responsible, and my Amazon package ends up at their house, they bring it to my house. You know, praise God for common grace. <laughs> you know what I mean? Seriously. I mean, they wouldn't want it anyway. It's just going to be some commentary or something, you know. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Every morning. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. The fact that the sun rose, right, on the just and the unjust. I mean, Kim Jong, you know, ill, whatever. The sun rose for him today. He got to saw. He got to see a sunrise, if you so please. You know what I mean? He gets to see a nice sunset. You know what I mean? He gets to experience, you know, good things, good food. Not his people, but he does. You know. Yeah, Hitler was given the the grace of of having a pet, and you know, I think like uh, Turkish pastries or something were like his favorite dessert. I mean, that guy gets to experience that level of goodness and luxury. You know, that's incredible to me. Anything else? Marriage. That's right. Marriage is a common grace to all, right? Um, children, marriage, uh, family. That is a total common grace. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're recipients of that. I mean, you know, when I talk about the force of common grace, I I think the reason I use that language is because we've so limited it, and it's, it's, it's really not at the forefront of our covenantal minds, you know? But it's like, when when you're in surgery and a Muslim is going to perform perform brain surgery on you, praise God for his common grace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't care that he's a Muslim. Can he connect the wires? I mean, that's all I care about. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and the ability to connect the wires, you know, make the little gray cells in your brain work again, that's common grace. You know, we don't need to discriminate. Oh, no, you're Muslim. You know, put the scalpel down and walk away. No. You know what I mean? Um Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the provision, you know, of having God's word, you know, uh, those kinds of things. We'll talk about different aspects of that. But see, this is what I want you to get thinking, you know, so that when you're at the restaurant and you have a good waiter or waitress sometimes, you know, and you, you received excellent service and you had a really good steak cooked for you, you know, to sit there and marvel at God's common grace for you. You know what I mean? And that everyone around you in that restaurant is getting the same treatment. You know, Trish and I, we went to uh, lunch with her aunt the other day. We had these coconut shrimp, Hawaiian coconut shrimp. And I'm just like delighting in this. Trust me, I was delighting in these things. I was looking around at everybody eating in such a nice place. and just like, God is so good to all, you know. And that, that of course, is owing to common grace. Uh, so that's kind of the stuff we're going to talk about. Um, um, what else? Anything else comes to mind with that? Yes, sir. I, I was just thinking back in Arthur Keith's book on the sovereignty of God, how he talks about the common grace, that the order of God is in the common grace, that not everybody goes to the grocery store at the same time. You know, what would happen if everybody on Wednesday, 8 o'clock, went to the grocery store at once, <laughs> or all the mail was delivered? Yeah. What would that create? But yeah. God orders things and times it. Yeah. Common grace to it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. I mean, the things they're getting ready to do, right? I mean, Amazon has plans to, I don't know if you guys seen the commercial, but Amazon has plans to make a, a market called Amazon Go, 
and it's just your cell phone. It's your, you have an app, and it's got a sensor, and you just walk in, and it scans you the second you walk in, and you just put whatever you want in your basket and walk out. And it, and it already detected everything that you picked up. It already counted it the second it went into your basket, and you just walk right out of the store. You don't need to talk, you don't need to talk or look or do anything. You know what I mean? Is that common grace? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if that's grace or judgment, you know? We'll see where it goes, right? How do they deal with theft? You know, a robot will come out and shoot you? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> the common grace covenant is also crucial for understanding eschatology, culture, anthropology, sin, and the character of God. As G.I. Packer points out, the reality of God is properly understood is not, is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal framework. Mm, what a great quote that is, right? That comes from uh, Hermes, Herman Witsius's introduction on the economy of the covenants. Uh, on this latter point, God's mercy and wrath are both implicated and instrumental for understanding God's plan of, re- of redemption as it progressively and organically continues to unfold. That's a typo. I have to go back and look at that. Uh, remarkably, the flood event connected the covenant of Noah, um, um, and it presents an indispensable link between two ages, as it were. We looked at that, right? Uh, if you look at Second Peter chapter three verses six and seven, that's a big one because there Peter splits up the, uh, the history of the world into two ages, as it were. He calls it the world that then was, and then he says, and, and the NASB doesn't translate it very good, but I translated it, I think, the right way. The world that then was, and then he calls it in verse seven. That's verse six. Verse seven, he calls it the present heavens and earth. So in Peter's mind, it's like the old world died. And now we're living in a new present heavens and a new present earth. That's remarkable, too, because um, it kind of sets the sort of like the paradigm for eschatology. Once the earth perishes, God is going to bring about a new earth, right? So it's almost like what we're seeing in Noah and in the flood is God creating a new heavens and a new earth. So it's kind of like paradigmatic. It's like, you know, that's right. So all of the original creation uh, language is reinstituted with Noah and things like that to show that a new creation has come, so to speak. Um, for Peter, the covenant of Noah is not just an interesting geolo- it's not just interesting geology; it is strictly eschatology, and and an eschatology that reaches far into the past to Noah's pre-diluvian fathers and into the present earth as God preserves Noah's seed for Christ's sake. I mean, isn't that remarkable? I mean, going all the back, all the way back to Noah, like what God is doing with Noah in the world, flooding the earth, but preserving him and his family. What God is doing there is that He is preparing the way for the coming seed. So, really, what was sort of the motivating factor behind it all? Why didn't God just wipe everybody? Everybody deserved to die, you know. But the reason why is not just oh, Noah was such a good man. You know, God decided that that be the the reason why He preserves the human race. No, He preserved the human race, uh, and He chose the man. But He pr- preserved the human race because of a prior promise that He had made. So, the promise of God cannot fail, and so that's why someone needs to be spared from the wrath of God. You know, do you have a question, Michael? Or did I answer it? Pre-diluvian is pr- uh, prior to the flood. So diluvian is uh, the deluge, you know, that's where we get the word diluvian. But, um, yeah, so the, the pre- or post-diluvian world, it's prior after the flood. Uh, does that make sense? Anybody, any thoughts on that? I mean, it's all about Christ, right? I mean, I try to make it kind of complicated when I write, but it's really pretty simple. The reason why 
God did not destroy the whole human race, including Noah, is because he promised that a seed was coming. And that promise has to be fulfilled through, you know, high water or whatever, you know. It's going to happen, you know. And, and, and that's marvelous because that shows us that God's unbreakable covenant purpose, right, that God's purpose will stand. Uh, his, his promises will be fulfilled. What's that verse? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, I think it is, right, where it says all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. You know, uh, yes, sir. That's okay. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not sure about the number eight, you know, but I know that in preserving multiple children, he would preserve a righteous line and also a wicked line, right? So it's like almost God is going to continue to display his wrath as well as his grace, you know. So the seed of the serpent will continue as well as the seed of the woman. So that's my initial thoughts. I mean, you kind of caught me off guard with that one. But uh, did you have something, Jared? Became kind of like a, like a, like a pattern. Huh. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. Um, yeah. So that's why, you know, I write down here that Noah is as much about the preservation of the seed of the woman as it is about the destruction of the world. Although the covenant of Noah is not redemptive, it is not, of course, devoid of saving grace. So, I mean, look at the language there. Yeah, let's turn there. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Obviously, this is kind of the seminal passage, right? But uh, the context of the covenant of Noah is pretty clear. The world has deteriorated into an intolerable point of depravity, where meaning... God can no longer tolerate it, so he's going to deal with it because it says in verse 5 that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. I mean, think about the commentary there on the depravity of man. The Lord was sorry that he had made the earth. He was grieved in his heart. Wow. Grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will... uh, Also, the King James is not useful at this point. Because the King James uh, uses the word repented in his heart, right? Or something like that. God repented, which that's really not even what the Hebrew word means. You know, the Hebrew word speaks of, of, of exactly what he's saying here, the, of, uh, a sense of sorrow. You know, repenting almost means like God sort of changes his mind, yeah, changes his state or something like that. But he doesn't. He just gives us kind of a snapshot of how he feels about sin in the world and it says here that the lord says i will blot out man that i've created from the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky that's really interesting because i think don't call don't call me on this one but i think the order in which at least some of this in verse seven is kind of like we talked about a long time ago in biblical theology, maybe some of you might remember, but I used the word decreation, right? So the Bible, that's the way the Bible works. Um, should I use this thing? So, you know, the Bible operates based on creation, right? Decreation, that's right, and recreation, 
right? That's the way eschatology works, right? God creates all things, then he undoes all things through judgment. And so you find in the prophets, numerous places in the prophets, where God is undoing the created order, where, you know, he uses the language of Genesis 1, but in reverse, talking about how there will be no more fish in the sea, no more birds in the sky. The moon will not give its light. The sun will not shine, right? So kind of undoing the created order because of sin, and then we await a new creation, right? A recreation of all things, that kind of thing. Um, Yeah, one of the things I'd like to point out is how uh, the the covenant of common grace serves the purpose of saving grace. So to put it in in covenantal terms, it's like the covenant of Noah serves the covenant of grace, right? Right? O. Palmer Robertson, really good, by the way. O. Palmer Robertson's really good. His, his book, Christ of the Covenants, is really good on the Noahic Covenant. Uh, he says, uh, God does not relate to his creation through Noah apart from his ongoing program of redemption. Uh, even the provision concerning the ordering of seasons must be understood in the framework of God's purposes respecting redemption. Now, what I only added to that is the line below. It says, of course, we would only add that the program of redemption that O. Palmer Robertson is talking about is nothing less than God's previous ratified promised oath covenant of grace. Uh, that's kind of a mouthful, right? Say that five times fast. Promise oath covenant of grace, <laughs> right? So, so, yeah, I, I I agree with him wholeheartedly. I just wouldn't shy away from using the language. So um, I use the language of covenant of grace rather than just the program of redemption. I mean, um, look at the next line. There's n- there is no redemptive program of God that is not covenantally conceived either in eternity or time. Right? Uh, and then my proof texts are right there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses that you guys should all know. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and Ephesians chapter 2, but in Ephesians chapter 1, you remember this, says, uh, what, did, what did I say? Verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That word counsel is strictly covenant language, right? What God has covenant to do, Christ fulfills. And then chapter 2, verse 12, remember that, that time you were you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, watch this, to the covenant plural of promise singular. You see that? So it's almost like all the covenants are sort of, you know, bound together on one promise or, or, the, or, the, or the principle of God's promise. And certainly, I mean, we, we just see that simple progression in the Bible, you know. Um, you see God's covenants all being bound to what he promises, you know. Uh, any questions? Any, any, anything you guys would add uh, to that? See, so, so, so Robertson is right. Actually, after critiquing him, I, I commend him. So <laughs> the covenant with Noah binds together God's purposes in creation and his purposes in redemption. Absolutely. This is how significant... Covenant of common grace is to the covenant of saving grace. So, that's just all introduction. Now, this is kind of the outline we typically have been following, which is, you know, defining the covenant, components of the covenant, the exegesis of the covenant, and then, you know, all of those things that I typically don't end up giving any time to. Because we'd be just like zipping through all this. So how do we define the covenant with Noah or of Noah or the Noahic covenant? That's my... um, 
that's my definition. Uh, the covenant of Noah can be defined as God's non-redemptive covenant where God has promised to dispense universal grace to all of humanity temporarily in order to preserve human- humanity for his eschatological purpose in Christ. The covenant of Noah is God's covenant of common grace. Would anybody add anything to that definition? I read everyone's definition of the Noahic covenant. Some of them were really, really, really short, like one sentence. You know, I tried to just kind of fit in a few things there. Um, yeah, but that I think that says it all, right? <laughs> There's a lot there. I mean, this covenant is really amazing. Um, I wanted to... I, yeah, I go ahead. A, I had a question. Yeah. Could you not, like you mentioned earlier, tie in this very uh, promise to the purpose of redemption for his people? So at the end of that saying, for the purpose of bringing about the redemption for his people. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, because it serves the purpose of redemption, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to keep it so I don't elaborate every aspect of it, you know, but yeah. I would add that the covenant wasn't just for humanity, but for creation. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So to preserve creation mm-hmm. or the earth? Or the, the universe. Or the universe. The entire universe. That's a good observation. That's right. And if you look below, that's why I point out four things, and that is that, well, let me read this first. It says, you know, the covenant with Noah can be called a non-redemptive eschatological covenant. So there you go. It's like, it's a non-redemptive eschatological cosmic covenant, and that's where the idea of creation comes in, right? It's cosmic in that it affects all of the created order. That's significant, you know, because of sin, not just the world should have flood. But, you know, the sun should have burnt out, the stars should have fell, you know, he should have wrapped the world up, you know, the universe up like a scroll, like it speaks about in Revelation, you know. He should have done that already, but he didn't. You know, it was like a stay of execution, you know, for the world, for the whole cosmos. And so that's what I want to look at is that um, you can see this because of its character. You can see that up there. Its function, its extent, and its goal. And so I took that that um, as kind of an outline. So what is the character of, of, of the covenant with Noah? It, well, it is common. Uh, it's, it, it preserves man. It curves man's evil. It's his moral depravity so that man does not deteriorate into complete and total anarchy, not yet, not until God uh, accomplishes his purposes. So, so, so that is, you know, why it's non-redemptive. Um, and what more can be said about that? Um, so he he's preserving it for that purpose. It's, it's it's preserving it for that eschatological purpose, for that judgment purpose, but also, like I said, for the arrival of the seed. We looked at that. And then also its function. The function of the covenant is ultimately rooted in eschatology, right? That's, that's what it was. And I just think about Jesus' words when he says, as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So it's like we learn from the episode of Noah how the world in this present age, this present heaven and earth, will also be. Um, so what was going on during the time of Noah? What was happening during that time? Well, you know, people were eating and drinking. Jesus focuses on the ease that people were experiencing in that time, right? But but obviously, that eating and drinking is sort of euphemistic of, you know, life under the sun. It was it's, it's just living according to the worthless elements of the world. It's, 
it's living a godless life. You know, yeah, it's a basically a, what does John Piper call it? A God-ignoring, God-minimizing life. You know, it's just kind of like people are more concerned with just their daily life, you know, than their spiritual life. So in that same way, you know, the the end of time, it will be that way. It will be people will be going about their business. People will just think the world will go on and on and on and on. Maybe we should look at Peter. Turn to Second Peter chapter 3. I mean, that's kind of like the seminal passage, right? While God promised not to destroy the world again through water, nevertheless, this common grace is temporary, interrupted only by the final consummate fire judgment of the eschaton, which is what Second Peter is talking about. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Now, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come, and they're mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, that's interesting. Uh, Peter says here, just as uh, it says for... Um, ever since the fathers fell asleep, what's he talking about? What fathers? Because that helps us to see who he's, who, who he's like talking about in terms of who are the mockers. Yeah, I think so. So I think there's a Jewish, yeah, I think there's a Jewish connection here, right? That, that's right. So what he was saying is that, in a sense, you know, Judaism became so pessimistic, you know, it became so, you know, apathetic towards the eschatology, Right, that their view was it was almost like a slogan. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything just goes on. So nothing's changing. It's almost like doubting God's promises and God's prophecies, you know. Uh, and it says this: it says all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So that becomes sort of like a hinge point. He uses that that language, that slogan that they were sort of using. It says, "For when they maintain this." It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed from long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Well, that's really interesting. Don't ask me what that means. Through which the world at that time was destroyed. Oh, wow. So now water created the world, right? Was formed out of water and by water. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Through which the world... Uh, at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Uh, just that principle, that the element of water. And we see that in creation. The waters above the waters, life comes out of the waters, and then death comes from the waters. So it's exactly what Peter's saying. Any any questions, points, anything? Go ahead. So many of you, by the way, tell me after Sunday school, I was going to say this in Sunday school. It's just like, I wish you would have. You know Huh? In the covenant, uh, being fruitful and multiplying. Uh-huh. Um, but also, the promise, I mean, you mentioned this in your letter about not destroying the world and through water and so forth. But the sign that we have through uh, the rainbow and the sky and so mm-hmm. forth, I mean, imagine if like, that was never given, right? We had never received that covenant promise. Right. You would wonder every time you see the Mississippi River flood or Correct. Other things, right? That's right. Is it happening again? Or all the. Yeah. Yeah. The, the comfort that can be to us when we see really cataclysmic events take place. Yeah. We, we know that that's not going to happen in the Christ. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's ironic, but the other day, you know, I'm studying the Noahic Covenant, and then I see a headline in the news that says, "Longest recorded rainbow ever. Nine hours a rainbow was recorded in the sky. 
nine hours. I was like, wow, look at that. For nine hours, God put his covenant symbol in the sky to remind people that he won't flood the world again. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's see here. He sets here, but by his word, the present heavens and earth. Oh, no, 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 I backed up. I, I messed that up. He says, uh, verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed. That's the phrase, the world at that time, right? The, the original Greek is a little bit more, um, I rendered it, the world that then was. Uh, that's a little bit more more literal. It doesn't say at that time. But the world at that then was, was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heaven and earth is being reserved for fire. And so this is what we're talking about in terms of the function of the Noahic covenant. It was Now it's being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Wow, that's incredible, right? So at the same time, it's like when you see a rainbow, it's both a symbol of God's mercy and his wrath, right? As certain as God will not flood the world, just as certain, maybe pay attention to the red part of the rainbow, fire is coming, you know, one day that will consume the world. Uh, the covenant of Noah reminds us that the glorious parousia of our Lord which that just means coming, will be filled with wrath where he will be revealed literally, according to Paul, in flaming fire. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get into the rainbow. The rainbow is so amazing to me. And also what what I call the extent of the covenant. So the extent of the the covenant is cosmic, and that's where we get to all of the universe, all of creation, all of the seasons in nature, everything uh, is extended to the non even to the non-human creatures. And this is Genesis chapter nine. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, "Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you." And so, so see, it's almost like his priority is what is happening with the righteous seed of Noah, which takes us back to the righteous seed of Seth takes us back to the righteous seed of the woman, right? So that's what's going on here. And and even from Noah, then Noah becomes that indispensable bridge that leads us to Abraham. And and yeah, Abraham and, and he also makes a promise about about Shem and about Japheth. Right, Shem even being the father of the Ebers, right, which is the root word for Hebrews, right, which that's interesting. So, um, yeah, so think about you're a Jew, you're reading the law for the first time, you come across, you know, um, uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 27, talking about Shem and Japheth, and then you read on into chapter 10, and you see there how that Shem is sort of the father of, of the Ebers, which is the root word Hebrew. And by the time you got the law, you're fully using the word, the root word for Hebrew, right? Or Ebers, however it translates it in the NASB. But he says, My covenant I'll establish with your descendants and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Wow, that's remarkable. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although the covenant of Noah is not redemptive, strictly speaking, as we have already pointed out, it does serve the purpose of redemption. The goal of the covenant is also eschatological. God is preserving the world for a twofold purpose, consummate judgment and sovereign election. Uh, sovereign election. Yeah, and, and that's why, you know, I said, you know, it's, it has like a typological function, which we've already seen, and which that's what we're looking at with, uh, with Peter, you know. Um, let's see. Let's kind of fast forward a little bit to the covenant, to the components. So, so you can help me answer this, all right? So who, who are the parties involved with the covenant? Okay, we'll get into this more next week, Lord willing. But who, who is the covenant with? Uh, so the covenant is with God and who? Noah. And, well, we can say creation. Let's just say creation. That's who the covenant is with, with God, Noah, and creation. And what is the promise? What is the promise of the covenant? So, no more flood. Well, that's right. It's not just that no more, you know, God will not destroy the world anymore. Specifically, he will not flood the world anymore, right? We'd have a problem, biblically speaking, if the covenant with Noah said God will no longer ever destroy the world again. That would have been a contradiction. But he does not say that. He stipulates that it's just referring to the flood. Okay? Yes, sir? Spoken like a true... Uh, yeah, spoken like a true uh, Jason Lyle uh, supporter, right? Flood. I'm not erasing it. Global for K-Dub. (laughs) What are the provisions uh, of this covenant? Um, So this is what I put down. Um, We'll expand on this a little bit more next week, Lord willing. But the provisions of the covenant can be seen in terms of of food, blood, and the power of the state that are graciously provided in the covenant. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. Again, go back to Genesis chapter 9. This is really interesting. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse... Verse 3, I guess. Genesis 9, 3. Every moving, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So what is God saying there? Get anything you want. Hallelujah, Jesus. Right? That's because, you know, I just, man, I just never been much of a vegan. So I praise God for his common grace, you know, at this point. <laughs> So, yeah, so the provision of food, he's going to enlarge the menu, right? <laughs> That's right. Huh? Notice it doesn't say anything about gluten-free either. <laughs> Probably everything was gluten-free back then, right? And no, no GMOs, no. Oh, my wife, we were laughing. I was trying to say GMO. I said HOA. Or what did I say, Trish? <laughs> I might as well say PLO. Ha, ha, ha.
Um, what about the provision of blood? What's up with that? It's connected to the provision of food. Only you shall not eat flesh while it is while it's uh, with its life. Watch this, and it says that is its blood. So what are we being told right there in terms of blood? The blood. Why? Life. That's right. Life is in the blood. Where is that? Yeah, Leviticus. I think it's 1711, isn't it? I think it's 1711. Anyway, um, but yeah, that's right. Look at what O. Palmer Robertson says. He says, all created life is sacred, yet the highest value must be attached to the life of man. To sustain life, man may eat of all the beasts of God's creation, yet reverence must be shown for the life principle of the creature symbolized by his blood. That's absolutely true. Um, Now, what about this one? The power of the state. Keep reading. It says here, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So it's almost like God is instilling a principle after this covenantal arrangement where um, man is not just to take other men's life for nothing, but when a person commits murder, that person should be subject to the death penalty, right? So already we have a civil law that is being given here. This is before God has a theocracy, before God has a kingdom. This is before any of that. And here's a question for you. Is this the first time that we get some sort of common grace civil law? No. Why not? What's that? Yes, that's right. Man, you guys are way ahead of me. Cain, uh, Cain and Abel. So turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. What, what this suggests to us, therefore is that common grace is not new, right? It's not that common grace began at the Noahic Covenant, but it was ratified at the Noahic Covenant. It was formally, covenantally bound there, but it was in existence prior to the covenant with, with Noah here. So, because so, even here, right, what happens? God, you know, is, you know, uh, he is cursing the ground, uh, because of the murder of Abel. And in verse 12, he tells Cain, when you cultivate the ground and it's no longer going to yield its strength for you, you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So it seems like Cain was going to be forced to live in exile. He's going to be a wanderer, a vagabond. He's going to be a, a nomad. He's going to be forced to travel. He's not going to have a home. you know. And Cain said, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And it says, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And so, in other words, what he was afraid of is that people will, 
in a vigilante spirit take matters into their own hands and kill him. Right? Now, this is interesting. Because it is so the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. So, right here, God introduces a certain degree of justice in the world where you can't take matters into your own hands and just kill people because you want revenge. Now, there has to be a level of justice involved. And, uh, and then he says here, And the Lord appointed, watch this, a sign for Cain. What is the sign that God put on Cain? Well, some would say, and I'm beginning to open my, I'm, I'm beginning to allow myself to be persuaded by this position, but that the next phrase, in a sense, explains the sign. So that no one finding him would slay him. So um, what they're saying is that this sign, it's not so much like a birthmark or something that God is going to place on Cain, you know, like he's going to put some kind of symbol on him. Um, The Hebrew word there can be also translated pledge. So God is going to appoint a pledge for Cain. So it's almost like what some would say is that God made an oath to Cain that no one is going to kill him when they find him. And so in that sense, God preserved Cain's life and so that his justice would be meted out. Similar kind of justice is happening there in in Genesis chapter 9. That's what it's talking about. It's saying, from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So God is there uh, telling us that what governs... So this is, this is now formally under a covenant, right? So God is telling us that to some degree, society will be governed in such a way that there will be a justice system where men and women... There are going to be, there's going to be some certain universal principles that they will not violate. Okay, so, so you know, this is, um, this is important for, like, theonomy. Uh, this is an important position uh, to maintain because what theonomy wants to tell us is that all of society should be governed by the Ten Commandments, right? But if we take the covenant with Noah as foundational, then what we learn is that, no, the ordering of society is not owing to the Old Covenant. It's, o- it's owing to the Noahic Covenant, right? That God, through common grace, has decided that uh, a society will continue and it will not divulge into this vigilante state uh, to such an anarchy, and to, to such a degree that society or humanity will not survive it. It will. So um, that's really important, I think, but... Uh, Anybody have any questions about that statements? I know that's controversial. So what I'm saying is that, you know, the Noahic covenant refutes theonomy, right? The idea that what's going on in the Old Testament is that the Old Covenant, when we say Old Covenant, we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, that the Mosaic Covenant is a paradigm for all other countries, right? Israel and everyone else should be under the Ten Commandments, right? What I'm saying is that that is a covenantal error, that God did not put all, all governments under the Mosaic Covenant, but God put all governments under the Noahic Covenant, right? That, and that is, that is on the basis of common grace. Uh, any questions about that? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, good. I was worried for a second that it oh, didn't make sense to you. 
Yeah. Now, just because society, even in Cain's day and now in Noah's day, just because society has the ability to uphold this principle, right, of don't go murdering people just because you think they've wronged you or they wronged somebody else and you take it, right, that does not mean that society now becomes sacred, strictly speaking. So just because they're able to dispense God's law to some degree at a common grace level, that does not mean that they are able to dispense God's religious law or his moral law at a religious level. So we have to be careful there because the, king, the, the, the society does not become a dispenser of the kingdom of God. That's what's wrong with theonomy. Theonomy would see that a state should also control the principles relating to the kingdom, uh, which it doesn't. I don't want America telling me how to go to church where to go to church, what to do. They just passed a law, didn't they? Where Didn't they pass some kooky law? I think, he, was it just in Texas? I think Donald Trump did this. <clears throat> where I think it's illegal for churches to force you to greet people. Right? There's somebody. Uh, something like that. Right? There's a law that now is saying, you know how, you know how these, you know how these pastors are. You know what I mean? It's like, they turn around and say hi to so give somebody a big old hug and say God bless you, right? So they just <laughs> so they just made it a law that you can't do that in the church. That you can't force someone to turn around and shake somebody's hand, right? Um, what's that? No, it's real. It's real. It is. It, it, I think what they're trying to say is that that sort of infringes on a person on a on a person's sort of their own private space, you know, like if you're an introvert, if you have social skill issues or maybe you have some sort of condition, you know, and that puts you in a very awkward, it's, it's, it's silly. But you see what I'm saying. I didn't like it just simply because, well, if they can tell me not to shake someone's hand, well, maybe they can tell me not to do X, Y, and Z either, you know? Like don't put your kids in Sunday school because you might violate their rights or something. I'm just saying, you know what I mean? Slippery slope. Right. You know, it may sound good to introverts. Like, introverts are like, yes, oh, that's right. I heard it on the radio. There was a talk show host that was talking about it, and he was celebrating it, saying, that's right. I don't, I hate when churches make me do that. You know what I mean? And so he was saying that that's such a common sense law that should have been passed a long time ago. And I thought, okay, well, if you pass that law, what else are you going to pass that churches can't do? So the state should not control the church, you know? Let's end on that point right there. The state should not control the church. <laughs> <laughs>